everyone. Welcome back to The Sip, the Coke Scholars Ignite podcast. I'm Aisha Shebby, a 2020 Coke Scholar from Miami, Florida. I'm currently attending Princeton University and studying medical anthropology and global health. I also host a podcast of my own called The Hybrid Podcast, which dives deep into questions of identity, culture, and society. Today, we're excited to share a special bonus episode of The Sip with you. While our podcast usually features incredible Coca-Cola scholars, today, we're honored to have an incredible leader from the Coca-Cola system join us as well. In this bonus episode, 1997 Coke scholar Darren K. Roberts rejoins the SIP to interview Junior Bridgman, the owner and chief executive officer of Heartland Coca-Cola Bottling Company. We are so proud to have Junior on the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation's board of directors. Darren just recently completed a term on the board as well. Let's learn a little about Darren. You may remember Darren from the first season of The Sip. He went from studying law at Harvard to working his way into the NFL as a defensive coach for teams like the Kansas City Chiefs, Detroit Lions, and Cleveland Browns. Today, he serves as the founding director of the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation at the University of Texas. Darren also serves as a venture capital partner with Notley Ventures. He hosts his own podcast for risk takers and trailblazers named A Tribe Called Yes, and is the author of two books, Call an Audible and A Kid's Book About Empathy. Roberts has been recognized by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader for creating a nonprofit football camp called Fourth and One Incorporated, which provides free SAT prep, life skills development, and football training to at-risk youth. Now, let's meet our guest, Junior Bridgman. One of the Coca-Cola system's newest independent bottlers, Ulysses L. Bridgman Jr. is the owner and CEO of Heartland Coca-Cola Bottling Company, which owns and operates a Coca-Cola production and manufacturing facility in Kansas and 17 Coca-Cola distribution facilities sprinkled across the country's Heartland, including Kansas, Missouri, and Illinois. He is also part owner of Coca-Cola Canada Bottling Limited. Before becoming a Coca-Cola bottler, Junior was the owner and CEO of various companies operating over 450 restaurants in 20 states, including 263 Wendy's restaurants and 123 Chili's restaurants. Junior graduated from the University of Louisville, where he was a three-year letter winner and starter on the university's basketball team. From 1975 to 1987, he played professional basketball with the Milwaukee Bucks and the Los Angeles Clippers. Junior has received many awards, including the Junior Achievement Business Hall of Fame, the Volunteers of America Tribute Award for Outstanding Service to the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and the Kentucky Entrepreneur Hall of Fame. Both Junior and Darren have such incredible careers full of twists and turns. I can't wait to learn how they navigate those transitions. Get ready to be motivated. Here's Darren and Junior. All right, Junior, thank you so much for joining the SIP podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> Listen, you, your, your life has so many twists and turns. And so I'm, I'm excited for the conversation and really to jump into the way that you've navigated all of those points of your life. But I want to start at Genesis and just kind of take us back to your upbringing. <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> you go way, way back, but uh, you know, I, I was fortunate to grow up in uh, in an area of the country, the Midwest, a little small city 
right between Chicago, Illinois, and Gary, Indiana, a little small city called East Chicago, Indiana. And and what what made that special at the time? Uh, a lot of people, families had moved there to that area because they were able to get work. The, the steel mills were thriving. There were a number of steel mills located there. So people kind of came from all over, uh, as I said, because they could get work. But what made it really special was there was, you know, I went to school with almost every nationality from people from Serbia, from Croatia, you know, Hispanic, whether it's Mexican or Puerto Rican, you know, or, you know, you name it. And everybody was in my high school. So I grew up uh, really, you know, being able to pronounce all kind of different names, all different nationalities. <clears throat> but the thing about it, because everyone's family was pretty much in the same economic uh, situation, uh, we didn't have a lot of issues. Everybody kind of got along. It was a, a a great place to grow up, a great place to maybe see the world as it should be. And also being in Indiana, it was a great basketball uh, state, city, and that was, that was the main focus, along with education, but but basketball was, was a big key. And everybody grew up wanting to play, you know, eventually for the high school basketball team. So, so, so this is, a, you know, and I'm from East Texas where football is king. And so I know <laughs> Midwest, obviously, the basketball has the top spot. Talk about Gary, Indiana. You know, people, people think of the Jackson Five. And, but that exposure to people who didn't look like you, different religions, different backgrounds. If you were to kind of trace that experience back, talk about how that had an impact on you kind of moving down the road. Well, what it, what it did was it, it, it eliminated all of the somewhat stereotypes that people kind of grow up with when, when they, when they hear about other ethnic groups, but they have, had no interaction with them. So they just kind of believe what they, what they hear, what they, uh, what they've been told, what they think may be true. And growing up in an area like that, where you had so many different ethnic groups, so many different nationalities, uh, you know, races, if you want to, want to, want to use that term and you, everybody grew up together. I mean, this, this is from elementary school all the way up through high school. So, you saw people for who and what they are, and you saw that they they are just like you. They're their people. Let's say I, I walked into your fifth grade English class, pulled you into the hallway and asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would the answer have been then? Ooh, in fifth grade, I probably... You know, like a lot of kids at that age, you see yourself being a doctor or, or, you know, a lawyer or, you know, some type of professional or even a teacher. You would have thought, you know, I think you have, would have looked at yourself in the future and said, I, I can be one of these things. Hmm. At what point did you figure out that you were you were pretty good at basketball? Was, was there a switch or a, a point on the court where you thought, you know what, I've, there's some potential here? You know, ironically, uh, I didn't even get a chance to play on the team until really my junior year. And the only reason I think they put me on the team is because I had an older brother that was very good. 
and they wanted, I think, to kind of keep them happy. So they just, <laughs> I was, I was on the team, but you know, very rarely got into a game. And not until really going into my junior year, I had a growth spurt. I grew uh, four or five inches, and uh, and I, I never will forget uh, kind of the moment that instilled a lot of confidence. We used to play in the summer all the time. Uh, you know, if you went to summer school, we'd play all afternoon in the gym. And so I was walking out of the gym, you know, after one of the afternoon games and the, the, the head coach, uh, John Mola, that was his name, uh, came up to me and said, you know, hey, I, you know, I like what you're doing. I think you're going to be our dark horse next year. And I didn't, I didn't have no idea what he meant. I never heard that <laughs> dark horse before. You're like, I don't know if I should be offended or excited about that. I know, really. <laughs> uh, but, but he seemed, it seemed positive when he said it. So I just assumed, oh, you know, this, this must mean something pretty good. And, uh, and after I learned what it meant, it, it's funny how a few words can instill confidence in an individual and make you think that you can, you can go on and be better and, and, and really accomplish something. And that's what that moment did. It, it gave me, I think, the thought process, the confidence that, that I could, could contribute, I could be better and really work at the game. And that's really what happened. And by the time, you know, as a senior, we had a, we had a pretty good high school team and we went undefeated, won the state championship, blah, blah, blah. And I got, was able to get a scholarship uh, to go on and play at the University of Louisville. You know, it's amazing how those words, right? It's one of those, um, and I think, you know, as I get older, you don't realize it in, in real time, but a few words from someone, they find a way to get embedded into your brain. I had a 12th grade English teacher who I, I didn't want to write, but she kept making me write my papers over and over. And she said something before the end of the class. She said, you know, you don't want to hear this, but you're going to be a good writer. And I remember walking out of her room like, what is Mrs. Henson talking about? She doesn't, you know, <laughs> you know you're worried about, you know, getting a football practice. But it is amazing how some of those words can really stick with people. And I know that you've mentored, you know, so many young people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm saying this for the for the younger Coke scholars and folks who are going to be listening to this that really kind of turn your antenna up because that could really be a turning point in your life. Yeah, you know, they can have a big impact on you, but it's what you tell yourself also, mm. the words that you tell yourself, the mental uh, things that, that you think about that, that also have a big effect. And, and you know, I'm one that, uh, that believes that, you know, you have to focus on positive things, especially positive things about, about yourself. I mean, you have to believe, keep telling yourself that, you know, I can do this. I can accomplish this. I, you know, if things aren't going well, I just haven't figured it out yet. But, but never, never the words, never the phrase. You know, I, I can't do this. I can't do that uh, because it's amazing how it becomes. Those words really become true, and they become the reality. And mm. it all started with what you thought in your own mind. So, mm. but we'll stop. We'll stop on. No, that's <laughs> good. That's good. We'll, we'll, we'll take us to the campus, the University of Louisville. And what were some of the words going through your head? So when you're transitioning from Gary, Indiana, Louisville, Kentucky, what, what's the soundtrack that, that's going through Junior's brain at that time? Uh, can I make it? And, you know, it, the thought that and, and not basketball wise, but can I? Can I compete in the classroom? I mean, you know, we we had 
well, coming from, you know, the high school I came from, you just weren't sure whether or not you had had the basics that had all of the training to really be able to do college work and compete on a college level. And uh, I never forget going into uh, freshman 101 English class and uh, the professor, uh, I'll never forget her name, you know, Mrs. Hamburg was her name. And, and she's talking about all these books and the kids are nodding their head to all these books that they've read. And I've never even heard of them. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, you know, where am I so far behind? I wanted to want to do well, I, you know, wanted to graduate and, and all those things. So I went back and and did what I had to do to catch up and to be able to compete and, and do things, do the work in college. Take us to the NBA. I mean, so from from, from Louisville to Milwaukee. Well, by uh, uh, fortunate enough to, to, you know, obviously improve and, and work at the game all through college and, uh, and, and to be drafted in the NBA, but I was drafted by the Lakers, not Milwaukee. And uh, uh, two weeks after the draft was traded to Milwaukee for some player by the name of Kareem something or other, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> I think that was his name. But, <laughs> but it, I mean, it was it was me and three other guys, four of us for Kareem. So that just gives you an, an indication. But it, it, did, it didn't matter at that time, uh, you know, traded right after the draft. All you wanted to have the opportunity to do was to play. And, you know, I tell people if they'd had a team in, in Anchorage, Alaska, that would have been fine because all you wanted is the opportunity <laughs> – uh, to play in the NBA and uh, and try and compete and and see and and so you know I got that opportunity and, and played twelve years in the league which uh, was you know fortunate and blessed to do that. Was there some mental transition where you started to lay the groundwork for your for your future in business? Like how did that come about for you? A true story. I was. Uh, uh, president of the Players Association. So what's that mean? That that means that uh, you know you get to be on a committee that does negotiation on a collective bargaining agreement, and that's an agreement that really determines how the league is going to function. Everything from how many games to to on and on how you travel per diem, different things like that. So when you're playing, when you're a player, the most important thing to you is basketball. And, uh, and, and so as we would start the negotiations, the collective bargaining negotiations, and I looked across the room and the owners were, you know, I won't say they were disinterested, but they just weren't as into it as the players were. And, and I couldn't, couldn't quite understand that because how, what could be more important than, than basketball? And so, uh, so we took a break and uh, so everybody gets up and they went to their side of the room and we're over on our side of the room. And I kind of moseyed over closer because as I, as to where the owners were, because they were uh, now they were all excited. They were, they were jovial. I heard one owner sell another one, you know, you need to, you know, I'm building this 500-unit apartment building in Kansas, apartment complex in Kansas City. It's going to be great. You need to be involved in it. You know, I'll let you look at it. Another owner was saying, well, you know, true story. You know, I, I, I've got – I'm going to help produce this movie that's coming out. I think it's going to be good. It's got some big names in it. And he said, what's the name of it? He said, the name of the movie is The Sting. 
And uh, for the old people that don't know what that was, but, uh, and, and, and now they're all, they're excited. They're jovial. So, you know, I asked our owner of the Bucks at that time, Jim Fitzgerald, help me understand what was going on there. And he said, they, what interests those owners and what they get excited about is business. To them, basketball is just another one of their things that they do. And so I spent time talking to Jim Fitzgerald, the owner, and, and that's what really kindled the, the fire and got it going and, and made me want to think about getting involved in some type of business once my playing days was over. Yeah, the, you know, you talk about the, the owners and what they're interested in. I was, I worked for the Kansas City Chiefs, you know, I coached there for two years owned by Clark Hunt, was at the uh, Detroit Lions with the Ford family. And I always got the sense whenever they would fly in or be at practice or come to a game, it was more of a hobby. Not that they weren't invested in the team, but, you know, as a coach or a player, man, everything's riding on that Sunday night game or, you know, that Monday game. And they, they would have some disappointment, but it was like, okay, you know, and go back to business. And so it's interesting that you kind of crossed that, that bridge to kind of just uh, eavesdrop a little bit because that's when for you, the light turned on that, okay, business is, this game is bigger than the minutes that I get on the floor, the salary that I get from, from playing for a team. Yeah. And, and I think some of the players today have recognized that, uh, you know, I, I see that more or, or I think I see it more in today's player, but you're absolutely right. Now you've owned and operated over 450 restaurants. I I'd love to know. Take me to the, take us to the first restaurant, and <laughs> and then this 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 another transition into becoming, you know, a, a franchise owner. How how do you talk about that very first restaurant that you opened? Well, and I it made all the mistakes. It was in. Uh, <laughs> In, in Brooklyn, in a, in a little area of Brooklyn called Bedford-Stuyvesant, which I tell people, if you don't, if you don't know my, about Bedford-Stuyvesant, you've never been there, don't go. <laughs> it, is, it is not where you want to go vacation. And so we opened up uh, Wendy's restaurant there and uh, did, all, did everything wrong. You know, we, I thought you could just hire someone to run it and not worry about it and, uh, you know, didn't worry about the location, whether it was a good location or bad location. So just did everything wrong. And uh, 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 the, the true story on April 1st, someone broke into the restaurant and uh, uh, couldn't get into the safe. So they tried to take the safe with them. And at that time, safes were, were uh, you know, three feet off the floor and weighed a couple thousand pounds. So they tried to take the safe with them. And and there, as we could tell, it, uh, it fell on someone at the around the front door because there was blood around the front door. They did get the safe out of the store, but uh, they, they got upset and they went back and set the restaurant on fire. And so, uh, you know, that was, that was my foray into the rest, restaurant business. So people say, wasn't that an indication that maybe you should go do something else? <laughs> you know, you should... And, uh, and, and yeah, but no, I mean, I thought, you know, why, why give up? And so, you know, we took a lot of time, got the restaurant rebuilt, uh, and eventually, um, you know, I got involved in Milwaukee. We sold that restaurant in, in, uh, in, in Brooklyn there and started with five restaurants in Milwaukee. 
where I spent a lot of time and, uh, and it just kind of went on from there. You know, we, you, you know, five, then we bought some, built some, and, uh, you know, next thing, you know, you know, and, you know, ten, well, not next thing, but 10, 15 years later, you know, you've got all these restaurants and people say, was it about owning a lot of restaurants? And it was, it was never about that. They said, well, was it, a, it had to be about the money. It wasn't about the money because if money had been the most important thing, you, I would have done something totally different that you could make a lot more money at. But as we grew restaurants, we were able to promote people. We were able to create positions and we were able to give people a better chance at life because they were making more money for their families. And, and that was really the whole reason behind growing, you know, was, was elevating, giving people a chance to, to provide for their families and, and, you know, district managers who were, who were making, you know, $100,000 a year that probably had no idea they'd ever be in that situation. And, and when we look back on it, it, it was never about how many restaurants, as it says, never about how much money. It was always about what have you done for someone else. And, you know, if you look back and say, I and can say, can't, and you look back and you say, I, I didn't really do anything, but I grew all these restaurants. Then I think you were a failure. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that, that was, that was the reason why we kept growing, kept building, kept adding restaurants because it, uh, it improved people's lives. You know, I hadn't thought about that developmental standpoint because I think most people would, would see the number 450 and they automatically start thinking about how much money would accrue to you. But it, from listening to you, it sounds as if like this became almost like a developmental league, right? Where you're helping people to upskill. When we look back on it, uh, it was really a chance to maybe help some folks who maybe thought that uh, the American dream, you know, so to speak, is, is not really going to be there for me. And, and I would tell people that, you know, the, the restaurant business at that time was, in my estimation, the last frontier, so to speak, for someone who could achieve the American dream without having, you know, accomplished everything academically and educationally that they they maybe you know would have wanted to and 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 that was true i mean you could make a good living for yourself if you just had a good work ethic and good common sense and were willing to apply yourself it was not an easy road but you know i look back on it you know there are very few things or i can't even think of one that that you can really say is easy in life that's that's really going to lead to uh, uh, any accomplishment that you want. Everything takes effort, time, and dedication. Hmm. Another transition. I mean, I mean, you've had several, the book on you has multiple chapters and we're going to get to the Coke <laughs> chapter now, becoming the chief executive officer and owner of, of the Heartland Coca-Cola bottling company. Talk about the first conversation, like where you thought about, okay, this is something that I want to transition into. Well, I'll, I'll take you back to we did a free basketball camp in Milwaukee for the kids, kids that couldn't uh, uh, obviously afford to pay to go to a basketball camp. And uh, uh, obviously, it was a lot of inner city kids. And so when we went around the city looking for someone to help sponsor it, 
the uh, Coca-Cola bottler stepped forward. And so I remember going to their facility there in Milwaukee uh, and walking in the uh, in the warehouse and seeing, you know, all of these, you know, bottles and cans stacked all the way up to the ceiling. And I said, man, wouldn't it be neat just walking it every day? And, yeah, I'm going to just grab one and drink it, you know. Grab- <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be bad for me. That would be bad. <laughs> <laughs> and now fast forward. Uh, wow, I, won't, I can't tell you how many years. And, uh, you know, we had all the restaurants. Uh, we served Coke in every restaurant. You know, we were, we were a big Coca-Cola customer. And I kind of heard that Coca-Cola was, was thinking of uh, doing some refranchising uh, with the system, so to speak. And, and when I looked around and, and called some people and about the opportunity, uh, I compared it to people in the restaurant business. And there were people in the restaurant business that maybe were second generation, but you didn't find a lot of them. But when I looked at the coca-cola business and the bottlers there were people that were fourth and fifth generation bottlers and you know some people uh, after i really got into and got to know them could trace their their involvement back to 1890s you know mm-hmm. and you know a long you know coke's only been around 135 36 years and and so uh uh i said you know what as far as a legacy as far as being able to pass something down uh if we could get involved with this that would be the thing to do and and uh was be you know blessed to be able to be awarded the coca-cola bottling facilities and at heartland you know which is obviously in kansas and missouri and uh southern two-thirds of illinois and uh you know my oldest son's involved and so i i i see it as something that uh can continue hopefully you know from generation to generation as it is what it's been doing, you know, for over a hundred years. Well, we're fortunate to have you in the Coke family. And as I think back on your journey, you're not afraid of making changes and pivots and also in re-upping in the sense of growing beyond the previous level, right? You're, You're constantly growing. How much of that is a part of your nature? Is it, is it nurture? Like what gives you that, sort of appetite for risk-taking? Uh, I, I think I was never afraid of failure, put it that way. And, uh, you know, I think we learn the most, not just about ourselves, but about the situation, whatever it may be, going through adversity. Uh, and yeah, I think that's something that was learned from all those years of, of athletics. I mean, we definitely lost more than we won. I always, uh, tell people, uh, you know, read Malcolm Gladwell's book. And, and he says that in, in order to become an expert at something, you got to put a thousand hours of work into it. And I thought about that and I thought about, you know, basketball and, and all the practice, all the, the, you know, plan by yourself working out by yourself and it probably put a thousand or more hours into the game to get to that level. And Mm -hmm. and what makes you think that it should be different than anything else that you do. And, uh, and so I say, you know, whatever you do, if you're willing to put the time and the effort into it, that, you know, there's no reason why you shouldn't be successful doing it. And so that's the approach I take. How how has the pandemic 
changed your leadership style? Like what, what have you seen and what have you had to react to and change about the way that you lead because of the pandemic? Well, I think you had to realize that people have a lot more going on than in their lives than, than just worried about, you know, how many cases we sold or whether we had enough cans or different things like that and, and maybe take a step back and uh, and say, okay, people have enough pressure, enough worry, enough concerns in their life. But uh, through it all, we were fortunate. We had a, had a very good year, and uh, and you know, twenty one has started off that way. Also, love it. I love it. All right, fast five. Yeah, here we go. First question <laughs> is this: What are two apps or websites that you can't live without? Oh, I can live it on all apps and all. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think there's too much information out Mm -hmm. there. Uh, But, you know, if you, you know, if you had to just kind of kind of pick, you know, I think, uh, you know, I do a lot of research. So so or or, uh, so I'd say the Google app and 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 uh, I do a lot of of looking at what's going on in the world that may be affecting the business. So in some ways it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the USA Today app. It's the Bloomberg app. It's all, it's all the business apps that, you know, I kind of go through just to get a sense for, you know, what's happening, what the concerns are in the world that may, may be affecting our business. Good deal. All right. Number two, if, if I looked at the music on your iPhone, what would most surprise me? Uh, well, I don't know, surprise, but I'm a, I'm a, uh, a 70s person, so I still <laughs> listen to, you know, the Temptations and the Fort uh, Tops and, you know, all of those Gladys Knight. I mean, that, that, the, the R&B, when, when, when you could hear what the people were saying and singing, you know, that, that's my type, <laughs> you know, not some of the other things. And, you know, I grew up in the church, so, you know, grew up with father, you know, directed a choir, sister played piano, so gospel music was still a, so you'll see, you know, back and forth between, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Kurt Franklin on Sirius XM and, uh, you know, Pandora. So those are the things you'll, you'll see me listening to. So. Yeah, my, my dad was is a Baptist minister, so you know you'll find some James Cleveland and oh yeah, uh, yeah, a, a lot Shirley of Shirley Caesar, Shirley Caesar, Mahalia Jackson, and yeah, uh, all the, all the good stuff. All right, what's your favorite book or piece of music or art that has helped inspired you? A book or a piece of music or art? Well, I've got got a, a, a lot of books, so we won't go down the list. Every as I mentioned, Malcolm Gladwell to you know Mark McCormick to you know I read John Johnson's book and uh, uh, you know on, so I, I could keep going down the list. But art wise, uh, in, in our in our you know office in uh, Louisville, we've got seven pieces of art that were uh, done by Nelson Mandela, and uh, they were. Uh, uh, ironically, when he got out, he painted the prison and different scenes scenes from when he was in prison. And then there, they took a picture of him, and it's amazing how what he painted, how accurate it is. And the other piece that I have, uh, I've got uh, an autographed uh, uh, photo or picture that was painted that's autographed by all of the the uh, Little Rock Nine, so to speak, you know, from way wow. back when. And, and to have that and have each person sign, 
underneath, you know, their likeness is, is, uh, you know, I think very, very, uh, special. So, so those are the two, you know, you just walk down the hall and, and you can't help but walk out and look at those and, and, and just think that no matter, you know, what you have going on in, in the world today, it pales in comparison to, you know, what some other people had to go through. Wow. 29 years on Robin Island and to be able to paint the prison with, with so much precision. Uh, yeah. th- those are timeless pieces. So congrats. Yeah, absolutely. Congrats yeah. What quote or motto do you live your life by? You know, I, I could, I could, you know, I could get religious and, <laughs> and say, you know, doing others, you know, you'd have them doing to you. But, but the thing that I tell, tell a lot of people when I talk to them, especially young people is, you know, past mistakes will limit future options. Hmm. And so they, they kind of, you know, think, well, what do you mean by that? And I say, just think about it. You, you know, if you do something today that's not good or is, is something that's bad, it will limit your options in the future. So think about everything that you do all the time, because whatever you do will have an effect on where you want to be in the future. Mm, I love it. But last, last question for you. What really makes the Coke Scholars program unique? Well, it, it's the stories and it's, it's the, it, we won't even talk about the level of uh, academic achievement that these kids have accomplished. But uh, the first event that I went to, a young man got up and he, he did not think he was going to be able to go to college. And he was from a small town and he was a good student, but he, he was working as a, as a bagger in a, in, in the grocery store in his, in his, in his town. And he couldn't, couldn't go to college, couldn't afford and thought that, you know, well, you know, I'll kind of see what life does for me. And he was surprised and obviously, you know, amazed and honored when he was awarded uh, the scholarship through the Coke scholars program. This young man telling a story went on to not just graduate to become, but to become a doctor and to go back to his community. And now he's running the emergency room at the one hospital for the whole area. And so you say to yourself, you know, uh, there again, here's someone that took advantage of the opportunity, probably could have gone on and become a, a great pick a name, you know, a field doctor, but went back to his community to help the people in this small community and that's really what it's all about. The story of going back and, and helping people on the way, that, that really touched me. It made me want to be involved and, and do whatever I could to help the program. I love it. I love it. That reinvestment back into to the home community um, goes so much beyond the scholarship and the dollars. I mean, you can't put an ROI on yep, being able yep. to see, see these young people go back and, and help the places where they come from. Junior, thank you. On, on behalf of all the Coke scholars, we're, we're, we're so thankful for your leadership and your guidance. And, um, you know, this episode is like a mini MBA. So, it, you know, for folks who are listening, I feel like you dropped so many nuggets of wisdom and, and were so candid in the way that, that you led the conversation. So thank you for, for joining. And um, we're looking forward to doing incredible work with you in the future. Thank you. And and you made it easy. So (laughs) you do a great job. You made it easy. We hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode of The Sip. 
featuring Darren K. Roberts and Junior Bridgman. To learn more about Junior's Fast Five and other things they discussed, check out our show notes or coca-colascholarsfoundation.org. As a special note, I would like to congratulate our 33rd class of Coca-Cola Scholars. It's so exciting to welcome 150 new, incredible young leaders to the Coke Scholars family. Thanks to the support of the Coca-Cola Company and Coca-Cola Bottlers across the country, each new scholar will receive a $20,000 college scholarship. The application will be available on our website again in August of 2021 for students who will be high school seniors at that time. That's it for us at The Sip. Please take a moment to subscribe so you'll be the first to get upcoming episodes. And while you're there, rate us and leave us a review so that others can find us. We look forward to seeing you for season three.